Welcome to our shared audio space. We spend this time here together for although what you're hearing now was recorded previously, we are united in the eternal space-time here together, which I'm very happy about, for this is a collaborative process, especially today's episode in honor of Father's Day, in honor of fatherhood. Different people have sent in contributions and recommended poems. What is it to be a father? What is it to be a man? These are open questions and opening, thankfully, more all the time, I would say. Many possibilities are there in being a man and being a father. And there's much fathering that can be done if one doesn't have a biological child. And we know that the energy of mothering moves through fathers. Energies of fathering move through mothers. That's one way to think about it. This crisscrossing. May there be many ways to think about it. And may we not try to nail these things down but celebrate emerging possibilities of mentoring and learning from fathering. So I'll open here with a poem by Grace Paley. This is recommended by my friend and compatriot collaborator Linda Letson. So this poem is called Fathers. Fathers are more fathering these days. They have accomplished this by being more mothering. What luck for them that women's lib happened then. The dream of new fathering began to shine in the eyes of free women and was irresistible. On the New York subways and the mass transits of other cities, one may see fathering of many colors with their round babies on their laps. This may also happen in the countryside. These scenes were brand new, exciting for an old woman who had watched the old fathers gathering once again in familiar army camps and comfortable war rooms to consider the necessary eradication of the new fathering fathers who are their sons, as well as the women and children who will surely be in the way. For a New Father by John O'Donoghue from the book, the collection of poems to bless the space between us. For a New Father As the shimmer of dawn transforms the night into a blush of colour futured with delight, the eyes of your new child awaken in you a brightness that surprises your life. Since the first stir of its secret becoming, the echo of your child has lived inside you, strengthening through all 
its night of forming into a sure pulse of fostering music. How quietly and gently that embryo echo can womb in the bone of a man and foster across the distance to the mother a shadow shelter around this fragile voyage. Now as you behold your infant, you know that this child has come from you and to you. You feel the full force of a father's desire to protect and shelter. Perhaps for the first time, there awakens in you a sense of your own mortality. May your heart rest in the grace of the gift and you sense how you have been called inside the dream of this new destiny. May you be gentle and loving, clear and sure. May you trust in the unseen providence that has chosen you all to be a family. May you stand sure on your ground and know that every grace you need will unfold before you like all the mornings of your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, And this one is called, from the same book, and also from Jenna Donahue, this one is, As a Child Enters the World. As I enter my new family, may they be delighted at how their kindness comes into blossom. Unknown to me and them, may I be exactly the one to restore in their forlorn places new vitality and promise. May the hearts of others hear again the music and the lost echoes of their neglected wonder. If my destiny is sheltered, may the grace of this privilege reach and bless the other infants who are destined for torn places. If my destiny is bleak, may I find in myself a secret stillness and tranquility beneath the turmoil. May my eyes never lose sight of why I have come here, that I never be claimed by the falsity of fear or eat the bread of bitterness. In everything I do, think, feel, and say, 
May I allow the light of the world I am leaving to shine through and carry me home. Here for a father, also from John O'Donoghue from the same book. The longer we live, the more of your presence we find laid down, weave upon weave, within our lives. The quiet constancy of your gentleness drew no attention to itself, yet filled our home with a climate of kindness where each mind felt free to seek its own direction. As the fields of distance opened inside childhood, your presence was a sheltering tree where our fledgling hearts could rest. The earth seemed to trust your hands as they tilled the soil, put in the seed, gathered together the lonely stones. Something in you love to inquire in the neighborhood of air, searching its transparent rooms for the fallen glances of God. The warmth and wonder of your prayer opened our eyes to glimpse the subtle ones who are eternally there. Whenever Silently, in off moments, the beauty of the whole thing overcame you. You would gaze quietly out upon us, the look from your eyes like a kiss alighting on the skin. There are many things we could have said, but words never wanted to name them. And perhaps a world that is quietly sensed across the air in another's heart becomes the inner companion to one's own unknown.
one because often we outlive our fathers, not always. So we may encounter our fathers going into old age. We may be with them in spirit and presence. Whatever way we're with them as they walk into old age. And so here is a poem from the same book, Jana Donahue. This is for old age. May the light of your soul mind you. May all your worry and anxiousness about your age be transfigured. May you be given wisdom for the eyes of your soul to see this as a time of gracious harvesting. May you have the passion to heal what has hurt you and allow it to come closer and become one with you. Read that one more time. May you have the passion to heal what has hurt you and allow it to come closer and become one with you. May you have great dignity, sense how free you are. Above all, may you be given the wonderful gift of meeting the eternal light that is within you. May you be blessed and may you find a wonderful love in yourself for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This next part is from my good friend, Che Berriot, and he's reflecting on his relationship with his father and how it's changed over time. As he himself has grown, how he's beholding his father differently, seeing him as another human, another man. Imperfect, but trying, and succeeding in many ways. And Che shares some specific lessons that he's learned from his own father about mentorship, about inviting the mentee to discover and to make messy mistakes and proceed from there. And Che also reflects on himself stepping into the role of fathering. Good day. It's Che. And I'm here to talk about my father. My father was rather distant when I was growing up. Very busy. And was only occasionally at, you know, after a family dinner, Christmas, that I would see this really playful, humorous side emerge in him. You know, wanting to alter the rules of Uno so people had to pick up cards until they could play and you end up with a handful of a dozen cards and there'd be lots of raucous laughter. My father is French-Canadian and there's this charisma and this joy for interacting with others and being of service to others that I, I witnessed I didn't really bond with him 
much until I reached my teens and I started working with him. When I was younger, he was was there for me if I if I needed something or if I was curious about something. And he certainly facilitated many of my interests, despite them sometimes being not very familiar to him, like when I went on to learn to play guitar. He did not play guitar, but he knew I was left-handed, so he went out of his way to get a guitar and get it strung in reverse and find a friend to teach me a few chords. You know, in retrospect, I wish he had just put a right-handed guitar in my hands because then I'd be able to play so many guitars as I wander through the world. But, you know, as I reflect on his care and attentiveness in those little ways, I'm grateful. <laughs> There's a couple other things that he facilitated for me, which he must have had to do with quite some protest from my mother, because they were living a very yogic lifestyle in developing this off-grid property and wanting to live very harmoniously and independently. Yet, I wanted a dirt bike and a BB gun. I guess my father sensed or agreed that those were important things for the growth of a, of a boy into a man. And part of it was that there were things he never got when he was a kid. Of, he had many siblings and just not as much privilege. And so he made those things happen for me, which I'm grateful because I'm a ninja on a bike now, a motorized one or a pedaled one, just because I had so much time on bikes. See, some people might say my father was a workaholic, and I don't like to say that. You know, I used to at times when I was feeling some resentments about his lack of playful connectivity with me when I was young. But now as I understand it, my father was driven by vision and maybe a little bit of weighty, disturbed anticipation as to the future of humanity. You know, him and my mother got into some Nostradamus predictions and there was Armageddon type stuff in there. But mainly he was driven by developing this really wholesome off-grid community lifestyle and he did a tremendous amount of work learning to build the house that I grew up in though he didn't have any formal building training he just really applied himself to figure it out step by step and that's one of the biggest things that I've taken away or that I've I've gained from my father that I'm very grateful for that has made my life a lot easier is the confidence in myself to apply my mind and my body in my heart, to do whatever it is that I really want to do. And that I don't need to figure it all out. I just need to see one step at a time and trust that once I take that step, the next ones will be revealed. And, you know, what I saw in him was a tremendous amount of persistence, like, Developing a, a homestead from raw land required a lot of determination and persistence. There was always difficulties, adversity, things going wrong. And what I learned from my father was to take pause. You know, when I got into a, a spot where I started to feel frustrated or didn't know what to do or things weren't going right, was to, to 
take pause, take some space, have some reflection, and come back to the the problem at hand from a different perspective. And oftentimes, I learned that either I just didn't have the right tool or the right piece of information. So if I was having a difficult time at something, I just needed to seek out one or both of those things. And the problem... Actually, that's what my father would say often. There are no problems. There are just solutions. Another thing I really appreciate about my father is the way he was a very quiet teacher. You know, and I spent time in my 20s where I actually had resentment that my father did not get more invested and perhaps even imposing in my education and in interaction with me. But now that as I reflect, I'm grateful for that and I, and I see the wisdom in it. Rather than trying to teach me and tell me and show me everything, he would really just allow me to, to follow my interests and my curiosities. And he would respond as best he could when I brought those to him. And when we started working together, similarly, even though he was by then quite experienced with carpentry and renovations, he wouldn't explain to me all the tools and exactly what we were doing and how to do it. He would give me very basic, essential information and then let me apply myself to figuring out how I wanted to go about doing the task at hand. And something I really admire is... <laughs> I was quite a... I may be a boisterous or talkative and opinionated youth. And pretty soon, I would start to tell him how I thought we should go about doing things on job site. And... He would listen to me with genuine respect and sincerity and quite often apply my suggestions. And he would wait until I got myself into, you know, a bit of a pickle. You know, I'm really grateful he would allow me the freedom to make mistakes, even sometimes probably at his expense on his jobs. And he wouldn't get angry when I made a mistake. He would just be like, really accepting and proactive and like, okay, like that has happened. Now what shall we do about it? And that is something I'm really grateful to have inherited because, you know, I see, especially in the construction industry, a lot of people really spend a tremendous amount of energy being pissed off that things didn't go exactly the way they wanted them to. And I don't see the point in that. It's like when something doesn't go quite as I wanted, I just be like, okay, and what's next? And now what am I going to do about that? And that actually allows a lot of room for a creativity and adaptability and ease of, of navigating unexpected things with other people, with clients or with people that I'm working with. I saw that with my father as well, a really good, easy, warm rapport with people he would work with. I've taken that on myself, and it's, it's just made my life in general and my working life quite a lot smoother. <clears throat> what else do I want to say about my papa?
I'll share one story about my father that really showed me his courage, his compassion, and his protectiveness. See, growing up in the south-central interior of BC, rattlesnakes were around. And they, at times in the heat of the summer, liked to rest under the back porch. And the back porch was a place where I played a lot. So this was an issue of concern for my parents. And I believe he was advised, you know, that he had to kill the snakes. That was really the best thing to do. And I watched him battle a a resilient rattlesnake a time or two. That was a, a scary sight, watching those fierce fangs bite at the shovel that he was attempting to kill it with and how even after many strikes and body being severed, the snake would still be alive. And I witnessed after the, perhaps a, a weight on his conscience, whatever the reason, he subsequently decided that he did not need to and did not want to kill snakes anymore. And that, in fact, they were probably just as afraid of us as we were of them. And rattlesnakes have the courtesy to rattle and let us know when they are in proximity and we might step on them. And so instead, he would, as he said, play a game of hockey with the snake, where he would lay a a five-gallon pail down on its side and he would kind of dance and tease and nudge the snake until... He could finally get it lined up just right and with one good flick of the shovel, landed in the bucket. And creep up and pop the lid on and take that snake very far away. This was very exciting to watch. I did go through a phase of, of hunting snakes after that, where I wanted to test my mettle against the mighty rattlesnake. You know, it's not something I'm proud of, but is something that I certainly gained a lot of courage and presence and connection with with this rather disturbing element of nature. Mm. You know, and I think something about those experiences has made me quite at peace and comfortable in the wild and with encountering wild animals. I learned that animals respond so much to our energy and that if I can manage my fear and my reactivity and just be still and calm and present, that most often wild animals are not a danger because I am not a danger to them if I'm not acting from fear and aggressiveness. I don't have any children of my own, but for a number of years, I had the privilege to step into the role of fathering for two young girls. And 
Of course, that was very different from the type of fathering that I'd experienced being a boy growing up out in the country to being a father for two young ladies in the city and going to a public school, which I had never gone to. And I learned what an impact my role had on their self-esteem. And this is something their mother was very careful to to support me in in standing in and, and being very attuned to. And I learned that, particularly for a girl, her relationship with her father really impacts her relationship with men and impacts her self-esteem and the way she looks at herself. Because her father is, in a sense, her first love, her first crush, and will have a lot to do with how she develops herself, her sexuality even, and her way of interacting with the outward world. Perhaps it could be said a mother nurtures a girl's emotionality and her inner world, and a father is that first introduction and facilitator for interacting with the outer world. I really took this to heart. You know, I really enjoyed taking the girls out in nature and introducing them to the wild and letting them bump up against their fears and apprehensions and, and be right there for them to do my best to help them feel safe them, but letting them find the edge of their comfort zones and take little risks, knowing that if I was there for them when they fell down to support them, they would better learn their limits. Whereas if I protect them and try to stop them from falling, then when I'm not there, they will probably exceed their limits because they don't know them well enough and may hurt themselves much more. So I've come to understand that, in fact, the best way to protect our children is by letting them take risks and make mistakes when we are there to pick them back up, to to demonstrate for them how to repair and make amends for errors we may have happened and how to care for ourselves when we have gotten hurt, whether that's physically or emotionally. And another thing I really value is supporting creativity in any form and enduring the messes that can come out of that, especially with younger children. It is so important to have the freedom to make a mess because that allows our creativity to flourish. And, you know, I myself am I'm quite grateful that my creativity feels quite alive and, I, and I'm comfortable to apply it in many different realms and it's because I'm comfortable with making messes you know what I learned from my father and I paid forward as a father is to really <laughs> be able to make a mess and be okay with it and to clean it up creatively that in order to create something we need to make some chaos and that that's just a natural part of the process, to, to be in that unknown, that uncertainty, 
that disorderliness allows us to re-put things back into a new way of orderliness that we may have not thought of initially. So I'm grateful to my papa for cultivating my courage, my creativity, and my compassion. The following is a reflection on what I learned from the death of my own father. It was recorded some years ago. There's life to him, the problem dark, a screen both left and right. No soul has come to tell us what exists beyond our sight. Today I'd like to talk to you about uh, one of the most profound experiences in my own little life and that is the departure of my father, the death of my father when I was about 18 years old. It was a very heavy experience for me and it made me think very seriously about what this little life of ours is and what might be beyond its confines of birth and death. He was a triathlete. One week he was cycling, running, and swimming. Then a few days later he was sick, then in hospital, then in a coma, and the doctors were asking me, my sister, and his then wife whether to keep the machines running or to let him go. He would not regain consciousness. It was liver cancer, latent until then. I was actually there when he left, and the experience really changed me. Touching his feet, a position that I would later learn was a traditional gesture of respect from son to father, I watched him go. Not like I see my hand before me, but not like I imagine a hand either. It was perhaps somewhere in between. He separated from the form I had thought of as being him and floated above that physical frame. It reminded me of when I was in art school and we went to the university's medical lab to see parts of bodies that had been donated to science by their previous owners. Here a head sealed in plastic, there a torso, there a leg. We were to learn anatomy so we could better draw living people a macabre practice pioneered by such weirdos as Leonardo da Vinci. They struck me as magnificent meat machines left without drivers. We chose cremation over burial. Why bury a broken machine? No one will need it again. My father dying was like having a pillar removed from my life one of the most important parts. And it made me think that any of the other pillars could be taken away at any time. 
my art school friends, my pretty girlfriend, the rest of my family, even my own life. I think there's times in everyone's life when the impending destruction of everything becomes very apparent. And that can be a good thing. I wandered snowy riverbanks, wondering where he had gone. I tried to talk to him and felt him, I think, but distant and floating farther away each moment. I dreamt that he walked up to me and I was so happy to see him. It was his smile and his beard and stature, but static. A simple song came to me upon waking. I dreamt that you were there with me Nothing but a memory Fading over time gradually Until there was nothing left to see I felt him retreating from my life, not out of existence, but just out of my own awareness and out of my own memory, becoming more distant from me. And it made me wonder, where did he go? And for that matter, where do any of us go? What happens after death? Now, there are a lot of thoughts of this, from having to cross a river to get to the dark land of the dead, to the halls of the forefathers above us, where we go to fight with other badass guys when we die, or transmuted atoms, or reincarnation, or eternal heaven, or hell, or just oblivion. Now, Far be it from me to pass judgment on who's right in such weighty matters. But in investigating it, there are certain points of view that made more sense to me than others. Allow me to elaborate. Empirical science claims that when the body stops functioning as a unit, we no longer exist. That consciousness is a product of matter, a fluke byproduct of matter, and that we begin at birth and end at death. Our atoms remain, but our awareness does not. Now to me, this is part of a ridiculous effort to explain everything, the vast range of subtle and tangible experiences a human can have, music and art and love, religion, previous cultures and our own, science and scientists themselves, to explain it all strictly in terms of matter. This is not science. It is dogma. If we really just spring into being at the beginning of this life and fizzle out at its end, why is it that people have different levels of compassion, intellect, spiritual intelligence, creative gifts, and so on? Couldn't it be that we are seeing just little sections of much longer learning journeys. The belief that the human soul has only one trial in life is evidently dogmatic, unjust, and contrary to the belief 
that God is all good. I mean, what if you're born in the wrong place and you follow the wrong gospel, the wrong God? Or wherever you're born, you're following these teachings that come to you about spiritual life as best you can, but you don't make it all the way. For myself, after these investigations, I came to accept the transmigration of the soul, the passing of the soul from body to body. We have lessons to learn. If we don't finish them in one life, we continue them in the next. And I found explanations of these in Eastern texts like Bhagavad Gita. It was my father's death that forced me to consider these things. And for this gift, as well as for being a good father, I'm grateful to him. And now since this recording was made, I'm no longer quite so sure that reincarnation is the best possible explanation. There's the possibility of becoming an ancestor. Some cultures speak about multiple souls, some that inhabit the place where we lived, some that go on, transmigrate as it's described. Some cultures speak about multiple souls. One might reside in the place where one lived, one's land. One might continue on, transmigrate as it's described in reincarnation. And there's room for mystery, for not knowing. But my father's departure did invite me into wondering about what's beyond the curtain after this life is over that might be found during this life as well. As did the departure of a spiritual guide years later. And as over the years I've come to appreciate the gifts and the love of my father more as well as his shortcomings and make room for both of them in my heart so too with the spiritual guide and others who step into this mentoring role. This next segment is from Amora Sun, and it takes the form of a series of journal entries with her own original music in between. She shares some perspectives from her Buddhist faith. And this is about her troubled relationship with her father and how very contradictory qualities can exist in the same man. almost been a year since you told me through another. So much has happened through lawyers. The worst if you revisited me through their letters, your voice in their prose. I wanted you to admit it, 
to me, not just the police. The chief investigator told me what you said, how you admitted to one of the charges. I imagine you may have cried only a little. So much humanity died up into a calcified shell around your heart. I won our dispute. You admitted nothing in the lawyer's letter. Your best self I am reminded of every time I step foot in a school. The way you planned your lessons helped little people learn to read and count. You were so patient. In my early teens, I could see you were tired. Swilling coffee to keep getting up. You couldn't keep smiling as your hope faded in your marriage. You helped pay for the bulk of her bachelor's degree. She was so unaccustomed to kindness. She must have made you feel like a million bucks for simply doing the right thing. To be given that chance at your age to help and love and be loved by someone other than a patient or a student, well, how could you pass up an actual life? I'm glad you didn't. And that's not just out of the selfish whim to have wanted to be born. I just wish you could have had the means to find someone to really understand you, so that when I asked about your family, our family, it wasn't like glass under your skin. You told me once you worked as an orderly, maybe in the late 70s, early 80s, everything was on a timer. Get your information while you were in the mood to give it. Smoking in front of our house as I asked you what you were doing. I just wanted to be near you, you idiot. It must have been very bad, rough, condescending, hopeless in the places you learned about, psych, in order for you to give up so easily on finding a solution, a pathway through for yourself. I could not rest until I found out answers. 2018. I hung on to a happy illusion until the end of 2018. I went to Denmark and tried to talk with you about your father's death certificate. I wanted to know where to go so I could find the birth. I could claim citizenship through ancestry to this amazing place with free education and such blissful safety and organization. After months of patient kindness on my end, slowly gaining answers, you emailed me harshly. I went on vacation and my cat died shortly thereafter. I spoke with you again. You said you would call me more frequently with a new phone card and never did. I was so tired of both of your and Sheila's shit. Just know I explored every other possible explanation. I blamed myself for years. On my 30th birthday, I cried in an old parking lot with Sheila because I wanted you to see who I was enough to show up for me on my terms. I never thought of our home as broken. So when you said one time that you 
too, know what it was like to come from a broken home, it shocked me. Did you think I was broken because of the impact of your actions on me? Did you believe that a simple Tourette syndrome diagnosis made me broken? Was your own internalized ableism or loathing or secret keeping projecting a sense of similarity between us? I know you told me your dad had had affairs. I have used all the potential energy of my love for you as my good father to do so much for others. You taught me that. But I am tired of sublimating, Dad. I just want to be there for you on your way out of this life, like you were there for me on my way into mine. However you want that to look, it's your life, after all. And your call, and how you want to leave it. And with who at your side. May 14th, 2023. Rick, it will be one month since you passed away, and I've let most, if not all, of your bandmates know that you died. And also, I've let them know a more balanced account of your life. Some understood what it was like for me. Others want to send me a card regardless of whether I want one or not. I see some older people around Salt Spring Island and wonder what you would have liked to do in your last few months had you been healthy. You never kept a pet who could love you in your loneliness, nor an actual partner with whom you were honest and fully seen. You collapsed in your bathroom, called for help, then got better, then got COVID-19 and died. I wanted to have a nice rest of your time in hospital with you. You didn't trust me toward the end, which is what I suppose I wanted for you to respect me if you couldn't love me as a decent father to at least fear me well enough to stay out of my way. What did you do to that other woman, Rick? The one who left those voicemails on your home phone that I listened to when trying to find the information for your bandmates to let them know you're dead. (sighs) I don't know if I will eventually call her. I hope that the police will so that I don't have to. I have taken all of the good photos of your life from your computers and put them on a Google Drive. We have submitted all of the child pornography that you collected on the computers and hard drives and dropped them off to law enforcement. It's no longer called child pornography, you know, Dad. 
called child sexual abuse materials. <laughs> that woman. <laughs> I hope she chooses to trust me, to open up once I say that you've passed. <laughs> I want her to find peace and relief in your passing just like I did and am still reveling in. We are on day 19 of your journey through the Bardos and the Ten Realms and multiple dimensions and deities you have encountered before your next incarnation. I hope you've chosen to engage your consciousness fully in your life review and not avoid the necessary temporary pain to build awareness, wisdom, and compassion into your and my suffering which you avoided so diligently during your last life with me. I hope you know how much you must transform now in your middle state and help me and others where you can in better ways than you did for me when I needed you. I will stop all of my prayers and meditations for you in 30 more days and all law enforcement advocacy by the end of May. I wish you the highest form of love. I know how to give it. Seeing, remembering, and speaking about your whole person in this life for the benefit of others. I will let you go on June 15th. We did it. I wish you were here in your best and safest ways. I have missed my good dad for over 20 years now. I'm going to make you into some nice jewelry too, for when I want to remember you in the good times. Bye for now, Amora. The following is my rendition of a story from a graphic novel called The Outside Circle by Patti Laboukan Benson, illustrated by Kelly Mellings. Now, this is not my story, but it impacted me, and I want to share it and speak about how it moved me and how it speaks to manhood and fatherhood. My vocal accompaniment for this telling is a bit experimental, so bear with me. 
It's partly inspired by something that one of the main sound effects people on the recent Dune movie said. He said, you know, I feel bad for musicians because they're limited by a certain range. What's in tune, out of tune, in scale, out of scale. But sound effect artists are not. The whole range of possible sounds is available. Inspired by this, in my singing, I'm moving between disharmony and harmony and weaving these together in resolution and coming apart throughout the telling of the story. So it's a bit weird, but see if you can soak into it. I don't know what manhood is. Don't know what boyhood is. Don't know what womanhood is. Don't know what girlhood is. Don't know what cronehood is. Don't know what old manhood is. Don't know. But I can tell you a story. story from a graphic novel called The Outer Circle, which is written by a woman who, Blackfoot woman, lives outside of what we now call Calgary. She's working with different Native men, especially, who've ended up in jail or some part of the jail reform system, justice system. And she wrote this graphic novel, and it's not something that happened exactly that way with all the names. This is drawn from her years of experience doing this work. And I saw this graphic novel, pages of it, in the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, where there's often beautiful exhibits that are co-stewarded by the Blackfoot people with the staff from Glenbow. Just seeing those few pages, hard to tell you exactly why, but I was moved. This man in his mask and the mask breaking and finding, finding a help from being in the forest around. I won't spoil it in case you read that scene. So I got that graphic novel, and I read it, of course, 
found myself in tears at various times throughout this novel about a young man, young Blackfoot man, and his ancestors, they ran with the buffalo, and his ancestors, they moved from place to place throughout the year, call them nomadic, which means following harvests throughout the year. Place of the berries, place of the sweet sap, place of the fish, place of the buffalo, place to be warm in the winter, place to meet with other groups during harvests, to intermarry trade, to share stories, to tell stories that were only told that time of year. Life was good. Until the coming of the white man. Guns, gunpowder. Killing the buffalo.
into the jail culture, weightlifting and playing basketball and watching your back and joining up with teams and trying to protect yourself with these gangs, mini gangs in the jail. But then there's this program running for First Nations people, Indigenous people, Native people, Indian people. It's been a lot of different names. In this case, Blackfoot people. Thank you. 
protective circle. Your strong backs protecting the life in the center. say this story moved me and this young man when he came out of prison not into some perfect world not into a world where colonization never happened and he got a job he got what job he could get not a perfect ideal ethical job you know construction work something like that he started making money he got himself in a stable position And he reached out to the mother of his child. At first, she rebuffed him. He caused a lot of disturbance before. At first, she rebuffed him. But he kept trying, and he sent money to help. And money can really help. Money can be a big help in today's world. And she came to understand that gotten some solidity, some connection he didn't have before, some culture, undercurrents running through him that had been too far underneath the surface before for him to really drink from it, but now he was drinking, he was drinking from it and he had a sense of being a man, he had a sense of being a father, even in this broken, imperfect world, he was stepping into that, he was stepping into that role coming back into the outer circle.
just to be in service to life, whatever, whatever that looks like, you know, to be in service to life, to be in service to the women and the children, and all this bravado and strength and tendency to show off a bit and all that, and be really in gentle service to life. If you appreciated this story, I would suggest getting the graphic novel. And another author that you might appreciate is an Anishinaabe writer called Richard Wagamese. And so I welcome you to the end of this strange and wondrous exploration of fatherhood. I invite you to reflect on your own experiences with being fathered fathered with the failures and the wonders of what mentorship can be and what fatherhood can be and all we've journeyed through today the griefs and the gifts and the losses and the strange singing on my part and so we close this part of our journey here together Until next time.